The stars are eternal. Chapter 2. The Meeting She had known from the instant she laid eyes on the boy that he would be her undoing. His pale skin and light hair were so unlike her own, and she had never seen anything like it. But she knew what it meant. The boy was like her, a symbol of the people, and soon she realized that her land would not be hers for much longer. The boy was the future. He was a representation of the future, one that did not involve her. It was all there in his eyes. One day the pale people would come from over the sea and settle in her hills and valleys, driving her people away like unwanted children into smaller and smaller territories, starving them, leaving them in pain to pick up the pieces. But she would be gone long before that. The pale people would build vast camps that would stretch on for miles, with huts that would reach for the sky, turning it brown with belching smoke. They would chop down all of her forests and clog the rivers and kill the animals of her land, as much as she wished that all of this would never come to pass. It must have been true. That boy had stars in his eyes. But still, she loved him all the same. Even though his people would come to destroy her land, hurting or abandoning this child wouldn't change the future. Nothing would. You simply couldn't change it. You played the part that fate assigned you and prayed that you would come out with some semblance of humanity left. No, it would be best to nurture the young boy while his mind was still new and alien to the ways of the world. She would teach him all she knew about their kind and help him along his way. And so she cared for the boy. She showed him the beauty of her land, the green forests and the blue mountains, the orange deserts and the yellow plains with grass that blew in the wind like waves on the sea. And she taught him to respect the land and all of the creatures in it. And he would run through the prairie grass, laughing and smiling. He would look up at her with those star-filled eyes of his. And they would scare her, those eyes. There was anger hidden in their blue depths. "'How long have you been here?' the boy asked one day as they lay in the prairie grass, his head in her lap. She paused to think. She had no way to keep track of the passing years except by the changing seasons and the endless cycles of the sudden moon. "'A long time,' she said simply. And it was true. She had been here since the earth had been cold and hard, and she was alone in her land. It had been a lonely existence, just her and the cold. But soon, big woolly animals began crossing over to her land from the great ice bridge, which had since sunken into the sea. These animals were being chased by people, and she had been so glad to see the people come, her people now, trekking through the cold and wind to see her land. She had been young then, naive, and had not yet witnessed the war and bloodshed that seemed to follow man wherever he ventured on this earth. So she was happy. And throughout the millennia, she watched as the earth thawed and her people spread from the snow to the desert, the hills to the valleys. She smiled. Then, her people began to fight each other. They stabbed their own people with spears and rained arrows down on their fellow man, which pierced their flesh and left them in agony, and it hurt, and hurt more than anything in the world to see her people die all around her. Every arrow pierced her flesh, every spear stabbed her gut. They left marks on her skin, so many marks, and she could vividly remember how she had acquired each and every one. She couldn't understand why they had to hurt each other, hurt her so much. Why? she would ask them, tears streaming down her face, blood dribbling from her mouth. Why must you kill your own people? Can't you see that you are destroying yourselves? And they would always reply the same way. They are not our people. They are from one tribe and we are from another. They have hurt us, so we must hurt them back. But she knew, deep down in the innermost reaches of her soul, if she even had one anymore, that it was not true. They were all one people. It hurt just as much regardless of which tribe was hurting who. They should have been fighting together, as one people, and it tore her up inside till she was sure that her heart lay in tatters in her chest. After a millennia of witnessing the endless dream of fighting and war that plagued her people, she had learned to live with the pain, learned to withstand the terror she felt every time one of her people died with a stick through her gut, every time one of her people writhed on the ground in agony, praying for his death. But the pain never left. 
She feared for the boy. He would soon enter a world of hardship and pain, one that would take this peaceful, happy little child and turn him into a monster. She had seen it happen with so many, all of the symbols of the people, the great empires of the South, the fur-wearing people of the North. Her sisters had succumbed to the pain one by one. She herself had lost her humanity so long ago, and this pain would never end, never vanish. She couldn't die, no matter how hard she had tried. The boy loved to finger the thin white line that crossed the front of her neck. She wanted to protect the boy from this world of hers that he would surely one day experience just as vividly as she did. She wanted to destroy the boats, stop the pale people from coming over the sea altogether, but there was only so much she could do. Simple or not, she was only one person. One person could never change fate single-handedly. And she was fading. It had started slowly. She had looked into a pond and saw her reflection indistinct, fading, though the water was calm and clear. She had cut her foot on a rock, and it hadn't stopped bleeding for a day. She knew that very soon her time would be up, and it made her smile. This land was no longer hers. Soon it would belong to the sweet, innocent young boy who smiled up at her as she kissed his sun-kissed head. She hoped that he could carry the burden. They sat in a clearing in the forest, the wind blowing through her long raven hair, making the branches of the trees wave and shudder. Her strength was fading. She knew that she would never get up again. She held the boy close to her for the last time, rubbed his back. His breath stuttered in and out, jagged. His tears felt warm as they landed on her skin. She smiled at him, trying to look brave as she feebly attempted to push that stubborn piece of hair down onto his head. "'It's time to say goodbye,' she whispered to him, trying to etch every detail of his face into her mind, though she knew that soon even that would be gone. "'But why?' he stared up at her with those unfathomable, starry eyes. "'Because my time is done now. Soon this land and everything in it will be yours.' "'I don't want to leave you!' He burrowed into her, clinging tightly to her tunic of deer skin. With great effort, she pulled him away from her, sat him down on the ground in front of her. Her heart ached as he sobbed, so she did the one thing that she could think of to comfort him. She reached up to grab the long, majestic eagle feather that perched in her hair and placed it in his hand. He stared at it in awe, the most precious thing he had ever received. Keep this, and whenever you feel sad or alone, you can look at it and remember me. He burst into fresh tears, hard. He sobbed, the droplets of water streaming down his ruddy cheeks in great rivers. "'I love you!' he cried out. "'I love you, too,' she said, hugging him for one last time. She saw her hand then, just a faint shimmer in the air now. She would be gone any minute. "'Listen,' she said urgently. There were so many things she needed to tell him yet, and so little time to do it. "'Go to the Pale People's Camp. Tell them your name. Someone there will know what to do. You understand?' She could only hope and pray that this young soul would meet someone who could help him understand all the things that she could not teach him. He nodded, sniffing up the tears, trying to be brave. Good, she said, a little more than a shadow against the trees now. She felt the world fading, the wind about to carry her away in a final eternal peace. Remember, she said softly, brushing one last tear from his cheek, I will always love you, my little America. With those last words, she ceased to exist. She was carried away on the breeze and Native America disappeared from this world forever, never to return. The little boy stared at the spot where she had just a minute ago sat for a long time, trying to process that he was now alone. He stood up, trying to hold back the endless stream of tears. The boy with stars in his eyes ran from his peaceful, childlike world and into his future. The trek to Philadelphia took the better part of the day from Boston Harbor, 
It had been hard riding on horseback, mostly because the path through the largely forested land was small and indistinct, and was covered with rocks and roots that threatened to trip up Arthur's horse at every given opportunity, but also because Arthur realized that he hadn't actually ridden a horse in a long time, and found his equestrian skills to be a bit rusty. But eventually, after hours of clenching with his thighs onto a huge animal's back, sore, tired as he was, Arthur made it to the settlement in the late afternoon. At the moment, Philadelphia didn't seem quite as grand as Arthur had been led to believe. It wasn't much of a city, really, more like a small community with a few log houses and businesses perched around a dirt clearing. It did seem, however, that construction was always happening here. At the time Arthur arrived, there had been three different buildings going up simultaneously, and the sounds of pounding hammers could be heard through the clearing at all hours of the day, so maybe soon this place would become a city. Charles had kept his word. There was an empty house set aside for his arrival. It was a quaint little cabin made of exposed wood logs, which made up the entirety of the structure. Walls, floors, ceiling, you name it, it was wood logs. Arthur couldn't really complain, though, as his dwelling was much nicer than a majority of the other homes in the settlement. For one thing, it did actually have floors, and not just compressed dirt, and for another, it had more than one room. Most families got by with just one for eating, sleeping, and being in, but Arthur's had three. The first was a cheery little front room with a wooden table and several windows. There were two doors off of this room that led back into a bedroom and a kitchen, respectively. It was there in the front room, at the table, that Arthur sat now, letting the warm afternoon breeze blow into his face through the open window. The easy part of his mission was done now, and as he sat there, Arthur realized that he had absolutely no idea where to go from here. It was true that you could put him in a room with a group of people, and he would have been able to tell you which one was the nation almost immediately, but he by no means had a nation compass, as the king seemed convinced he did. He simply couldn't find a nation with the whole of the new world as his parameters, and it wasn't like the nation would be actively seeking him out, either. He realized that he'd been muttering bloody impossible to himself again, but it was true. The new world was a positively huge place. He could be here for years and catch neither hide nor hair of the nation. It was bloody impossible. Bloody impossible. In fact, even the proposition was so outrageous that Arthur almost packed up right there to head back for England. He knew for a fact that no such nation could possibly exist here. It was only a bloody colony, after all. It was simply a little spot of light in the great dark wilderness that surrounded it. Arthur could have searched for a thousand years, a million even, and never even come close to finding, But I am America! Give me back my feather! That's not cool, dude! The sounds of vaguely irate children's voices floated in through the window, followed by a bevy of malicious laughter. Arthur turned his head towards the noise. Had he heard what he just thought he had? Did that shrill voice just proclaim that it was America, or had the warm day caused Arthur to start hallucinating? "'You're lying,' said one voice. "'You can't be America,' said another, a girl by the sound of it. "'America's not a person. It's a place.' "'I'm going to hold on to this pretty feather until you tell the truth,' said a third, the loudest. "'But I am telling the truth!' the very first again. "'I'm America!' Now Arthur knew that he couldn't have been hearing things. That had happened. He distinctly heard a little voice shout that he was, in fact, a country. The kid was lucky he was young. If Arthur went around proclaiming that he was the anthropomorphic personification of the island of Great Britain, he'd be tossed in the loony bin faster than he could say, God save the king. 
Arthur thumped across the floor of the cabin and opened the door. There, only a short distance away from his house, in the center of the clearing, were four children. Two boys and a girl stood around a third, slightly smaller boy. The biggest of them, a beefy kid with matted brown hair, held the largest feather that Arthur had ever seen above his head, while the boy in the middle tried desperately to get it back. As he jumped up and down, the strand of flax-blonde hair that popped up from his head at an odd angle bounced with him. The other two children closed Cowlick Boy in and laughed all the while at his suspense. "'Give it back!' Cowlick boy shouted through gritted teeth. The bigger boy just laughed and didn't pay heed to the boy's begging. He shifted the feather from hand to hand, holding it tantalizingly close to Cowlick boy's face before yanking it into the sky again and out of reach. And then it happened. A look came into Cowlick boy's eyes that terrified Arthur. It seemed to scare the other children, too, who stopped. He looked angry, unnaturally so for a child so young, and the other kids started to back away. Give it back, Cowlick boy repeated, quieter now. But the bigger boy was unfazed. He was either very confident or very, very stupid. Arthur secretly thought that the latter was far more likely. "'Make me!' he smirked down at the smaller boy. Calic boy's eyes narrowed into slits and burned into him. The challenge wouldn't go unanswered. He grabbed his arm, the one busy holding the long feather over his head, and pulled, bringing it back down to the bigger boy's side with a sickening crunch. The feather fell to the ground, and Calic boy snatched it up, brushing the dirt off with reverence. All four children then stood in silence for a moment, until the bigger boy began to tear up and bawled, falling to the ground and clutching his surely broken arm. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean— Calic boy sputtered, fearful of repercussion, but the bigger boy wasn't going to be retaliating any time soon. His howls of pain echoed through the settlement, though, and were starting to draw attention from the adults around. The other two children looked at each other and quickly fled the scene. Calic boy shivered and looked this way and that, unsure of what to do. The light went off in Arthur's head. This boy was indeed a nation. There was otherwise no conceivable way he could have broken the bigger boy's arm by brute strength alone. Arthur never heard of a nation being that strong, but most of them did have certain... quirks. Austria could play absolutely any piece of music you put in front of him, regardless of instrument or style, and as much as he hated to admit it, France had been called the most aesthetically pleasing creature on the planet on multiple occasions, so it wasn't extremely unusual. But now the various colonists were beginning to have their attention drawn to this impossible crime. If they looked too closely, there would be questions, which would not do anyone good. Arthur would have to make his move, and quickly. "'Oi, you!' he called to the boys, and Calic Boy looked up in fear, his blue eyes wide. Arthur began to jog over to the pair, gaze fixed on the guilty one. He prayed that Calic Boy wouldn't get scared and dash. "'Just stay where you are,' he pleaded silently. "'You're in big trouble, young man,' he said loudly, trying to look in charge of the situation. "'I—I—I—' Calic Boy stuttered, surely confused. Had this stranger mistaken him for someone else? A child or younger brother? He shuffled back and forth on his feet, not sure of what to do or where to go. He looked about ready to run, but Arthur was quicker. Grabbing his shoulder, he leaned down next to Calic Boy's ear. In about five seconds, those adults are going to start asking questions that neither of us can answer without being shipped off to the loony bin, he whispered. So I'm going to get you out of here, but you have to play along. Calic Boy nodded almost imperceptibly, and Arthur stood, still clutching onto his shoulder. "'Come on!' he shouted to make sure that everyone around could hear him. "'We're going to have some words!' Arthur moved his hand to behind the boy's back and began guiding him towards the woods. He looked over his shoulder and saw that the bigger boy had limped off somewhere, hopefully to get help. "'Aw, come on, big brother! It was just a game!' Calic boy protested, putting on a surprisingly good pout, but he willingly allowed Arthur to steer him away from the scene and into safety. "'I'll not hear another word about it!' said Arthur as they moved into the dark of the forest." They walked through the dense greenery for a minute, not saying a word to each other, until Arthur was certain that they were a good distance away from the settlement. He let out the breath he just realized he was holding and relaxed. That was close. Calic Boy stared up at him for a moment, appraisingly, as if confused by his strange behavior, and Arthur waited patiently, certain that in just a moment he would come to the correct conclusion. 
The boy might have only looked eight, but really he could have been any age at all. Aging was strange for nations and didn't occur steadily. Even Arthur, who had been around for a bloody long time, didn't really understand it. If he was honest, he didn't really know a lot about anything. Although most nations tended to look like adults by the time they were 200, the boy could have very well been older than Arthur himself. It dawned on Cowlick Boy then, whose mouth widened into an O. "'You're like me!' he exclaimed, pointing a small finger at Arthur. Arthur chuckled. "'Not much subtlety about you, is there?' He kneeled down as to be eye-level with the boy. "'But if you mean a nation, then yes, I am like you.' "'A nation?' the boy asked, testing the word as if he'd never heard it before. Arthur realized with a jolt that he probably never had. This was a wild and untamed land with no signs of civilization as far as he could tell. He'd probably never been exposed to such a concept. The boy had a lot to learn. "'Yes, I represent a country from across the sea. They call me Britain.' "'I'm America!' the boy smiled brightly. He seemed to get it, but after a second his perpetual grin faltered. "'But what's a country?' Arthur thought for a second, trying to think of a possible way to describe the idea. It was one of those intangible things that was difficult to explain to someone when they never heard of the concept. How could he phrase it? "'It's like,' he began, "'a huge group of people who work together to help each other out.' He finished lamely, not sure if the explanation was sufficient. "'Oh, like a tribe?' the boy asked. Arthur realized that he was going to be here for a while and sat down on the soft forest ground. Kellogg boy followed suit, plopping down hard. The eagle feather that he'd sent stuck in his hair followed suit, plopping limply as he sat. "'Kind of,' Arthur said, "'but much bigger, like a bunch of tribes working together.' Kellogg boy bit his lip, but he nodded, seeming to understand. His eyebrows knitted together. "'Am I a country?' Oh, goodness. Arthur had known the boy for approximately twenty minutes, and they were already getting to the subject that he'd hoped to avoid at all costs. He needed to tread carefully here. Not exactly, he said. You're a colony. Several of them, actually. A colony? This was going to be a long, bloody day. Yes, said Arthur, trying not to sound testy. The boy was most certainly fond of asking questions. "'Technically, the colonies are part of my country,' he tried to explain. "'But you're very far away from me, all the way across the ocean, so you get to look after yourselves.' Calic Boy tilted his head. "'So does that make you my brother?' he asked. Arthur paused. He didn't really know how to feel about the word brother. Most of his actual brothers, Scotland and Wales, had just ignored him most of his life, so he'd never really had a real brother, unless you counted Francis and Antonio, but he hated the former's guts and was also not on the best of terms with the latter, especially since he tried to invade Britain with his enormous Spanish armada, which had luckily been stopped by Arthur's beloved English channel. But as he looked down at the small nation with such an innocent look in his eyes, Arthur became conscious of the fact that, for some reason, he wanted to protect this young, inexperienced boy. He did want to be his brother. Yes, he said, smiling. I guess that does make me your big brother, then. Yay! exclaimed the smaller nation, jumping up and down in excitement. All right, then, said Arthur, reclaiming his attention instantly. The sudden silence shocked him for a second, who was not used to having people listen to him so readily. Uh, first order of business, then. I assume you don't have a name. The boy looked confused. I already told you, it's America. Uh, no, no, said Arthur. I mean a human name. The little boy stared up at him, waiting silently for an explanation. Uh, most people don't know about nations, he began, and it would probably be for the best if it stayed that way, so you need a normal name to introduce yourself with. This was the official reasons for the nations to have names. It wasn't really a rule, per se, but it was what they told people when they were asked about it. 
Over the millennia, for one reason or another, almost all of the nations had taken one. For some, it was to honor a fallen comrade or to fit into human society, but for most, it was really because deep down they wanted to convince themselves that they were still human. Could still be human. It was something they could cling to when the world was falling down around them. When there was nothing left, they still had their names. "'I don't have one of those,' said the boy, despondent. Arthur patted him on the shoulder, hoping that the gesture was comforting. "'It's okay,' he smiled. "'We'll just choose one for you.' Calic Boy brightened up immediately. "'What's your name?' he asked. "'Arthur Kirkland.' "'Can I be Arthur Kirkland, too?' Calic Boy asked, eyes wide in anticipation. Arthur laughed. <laughs> "'Goodness, no. Then people would get us confused. You need a name that's all your own, one that's unique.' "'Hmm,' the boy thought for a moment, nose scrunched in concentration. Arthur supposed that he was asking a lot of him. To choose a name that you would be using for several lifetimes on the spot would have been nerve-wracking. Arthur decided to help him out. "'How about William?' he offered. "'No.' The boy shook his head. "'James?' "'No.' "'Charles?' "'No.' "'Fergus?' The boy laughed. <laughs> "'No way!' "'Hmm,' Arthur hesitated. "'How about Alfred?' The boy looked about ready to reject that name, too, but then he stopped thought about it for a second. Alfred. He tasted the name in his tongue. Alfred. Arthur waited patiently. I like it, the boy smiled. It's a fine name, Arthur agreed. Now you need a surname so that we can tell you apart from all the other Alfreds in the world, he answered the question preemptively. Alfred sat at detention, enthralled with the idea of receiving a name. How about Jones? Arthur offered. The name was Welsh, but he doubted that his brother would mind if he maybe borrowed it. Alfred Jones, said Alfred, trying it out. My name is Alfred Jones, he mock introduced himself to the thin air in front of him. Arthur chuckled. It fits you perfectly. He looked upwards then, and saw that it was getting quite dark. The sun was already behind the tall trees, which cast long shadows onto the undergrowth. It would be time to head back soon. He had no idea what sorts of strange creatures might lurk in the forest after dark. "'Do you have a place to stay?' he asked Alfred. The boy's grimless smile dropped from his face, and his eyes clouded over. The quickness of the change shocked Arthur. What had he said? "'I used to live with my big sister,' Alfred began. "'But she—she she disappeared.' He didn't cry, just looked despairingly downward. Maybe he had run out of tears. "'Hey,' Arthur said, and Alfred preemptively glomped him into a hug. Arthur let out a small oof. The boy was certainly strong. "'Why don't you come stay with me?' he asked after getting his breath back. Alfred pulled away and looked up at Arthur, hope oozing its way out of his every pore. "'Really? You let me do that?' "'Sure,' said Arthur. "'What a big brother's for. Follow me, and I'll show you the place.' He took the boy's small hand in his own, and together they walked off through the forest back to Philadelphia as newfound brothers. Behind them, the sun set below the trees, spreading red and gold into an ever-darkening sky." They walked through the forest leisurely, taking their time and getting back to the settlement. If Arthur had thought that he'd asked a lot of questions before, it was nothing compared to the sheer amount of inquiry the child made on their walk. He was incredibly inquisitive and, unfortunately, not very well educated in the ways of the civilized world, but he seemed eager to learn. Hopefully that could work to Arthur's advantage. It was dark by the time they reached the settlement, and all was silent, save for the chirpings of crickets hidden in the brush. A few kerosene lamplights shone in the windows of the log houses, but overall it seemed as if most of the colonists had turned in early, and they had taken longer than they'd meant to get back. Arthur had a little trouble finding his house in the dark, he himself only having been there once before, but they eventually came upon it, and Arthur fumbled with the door handle a bit. It stuck, and stumbled inside. 
While he busied himself with finding some candles and matches, Arthur didn't notice that Alfred stood just outside the doorway, staring with trepidation into the interior of the house. After a few moments, Arthur found a lamp and set it on the table. It was then that he looked up and saw just how scared the child looked, his wide eyes almost glowing in the dark. What scared the boy so much? Had he never been in a real house before? If what the young nation said was true, then he'd been roughing it in the woods like a savage for as long as he could remember. Then maybe he hadn't been. "'What's wrong?' Arthur asked. Alfred jumped a little, hair-trigger alert. "'I—' he started, playing with his deerskin tunic nervously. Arthur made a note to get him some actual clothes as soon as he could. He seemed embarrassed, but continued. "'It's just—' "'I can't see the sky.' "'The sky?' Arthur didn't see what was so important about that. Seeing the sky above you when you were sleeping or eating or much of anything, for that matter, meant that you were viable to be bombarded by insects or any number of strange things while you were trying to get something done, and you would do best to head inside immediately. But as he thought about it, Arthur imagined that if he'd lived outdoors for a vast majority of his life, all of those things probably wouldn't be quite as annoying to him. In fact, it might seem perfectly normal. If the sky had been the one permanent fixture in an ever-changing landscape, he'd be a little scared of suddenly not being able to see it, too. A large yawn passed Alfred's lips then, despite himself, and Arthur sighed. He could have very easily insisted that the boy come inside. could have been cruel, but it was late, and Arthur was tired, and he really didn't have the energy to be cruel anyway, so he might as well just give the boy what he wanted, if only for this one night. So he grabbed a quilt and a few feather pillows from the bedroom. All right, we'll sleep outside then. Alfred's face brightened immediately, and Arthur's heart simply melted. The boy simply did something to him, and he didn't exactly know what it was. Was this that thing that people had described to him as familial affection? But only for one night, he said, unable to give completely into the young boy's desires. Alfred nodded solemnly, but he seemed genuinely relieved. There was a small hill behind the house, oddly bare of trees or vegetation of any kind, really, unless you counted the coarse grass underfoot, and Alfred began to climb it before Arthur could say otherwise. Arthur followed behind, trying his darndest not to grumble, and searched around until he found a relatively flat spot to lay the quilt on. He spread the quilt on the ground and flopped the pillows on top of it. Then he laid down, and Alfred quickly nestled into his side, his head on Arthur's chest. Arthur lay there for a while, listening to the boy's even breathing. Was it just him, or did the stars shine brighter over here in the New World than in England? They floated there above him, suspended in the sky with invisible strings. Arthur had always liked the stars. Even though he knew that they wouldn't really be there forever, it surely seemed that way. No matter how long he lived, how many lives he'd taken, how many regrets he had, he could always look up at the sky and marvel at the one thing in the world that was older than he was. They always sat there, looking exactly the same as they had the previous night. He had to admire their consistency. "'Brother?' Alfred asked timidly, and Arthur looked down to see his luminous blue eyes staring up at him. For a moment, Arthur could have sworn that he saw the stars reflected there, but mentally shook himself. It was just his tired mind playing tricks on him. "'Yes?' he replied, gazing down at the strange creature that had somehow managed to make him smile so readily. "'Again?' Alfred stared tentatively up at him, looking small against the vast canvas of the sky that wheeled above them. "'Can you tell me a story?' "'A story?' "'Sure. Arthur had plenty of stories. You didn't live to be upwards of a thousand years and not collect some tales.' "'All right.' he said, and Alfred promptly snuggled closer, looking excited. Arthur paused. What tale would be best? One of pirates and treasure? Exploration? Knights and kings? Ah, he added. He'd tell him the oldest story of all. Once upon a time, Arthur began, grinning slightly as he began to relive the past exploits of a certain group of knights who happened to sit around a round table. Once upon a time, he repeated for effect, 
There lived a young boy named Wart, and he was— A soft, peaceful snore interrupted him mid-sentence. He looked down to find that Alfred was already asleep, snuggled against him on the quilt. Arthur sighed. He'd have to finish some other time. He smoothed Alfred's hair, his cowlick popping stubbornly back into place. Little bugger. Alfred mumbled a little, but didn't wake. Part of Arthur couldn't believe that this child could even exist, that he could be here right now and actually seem to like Arthur, to look up to him. No one had ever looked up to him before. He was filled with the feeling that he had to protect this little guy. I had to make sure that Francis would never get his grubby paws on him, because he didn't know how, but Arthur just knew that someday this little nation would be great. <laughs>